As we go to the word of God, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you spoke light into existence. That you have sent your son Jesus, the light of the world, to give hope to those in darkness. And Lord, I pray that in this moment, as we look at your word, that light would shine brightly in our hearts to dispel fear and discouragement and sin and doubt and replace it with strong faith in the Son of God who has demonstrated your love for us and given us a hope and a future. And I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The passage that I'm going to be preaching from this morning is Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, I want to invite you to turn there, whether it's with a phone or with a paper Bible. Isaiah is kind of close to the middle of the Bible, um, almost, almost in the center. There's 66 chapters, making it one of the easier books to find. I'm going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. And this is a passage that is a little bit familiar uh, it's been sung in English for hundreds of years. Uh, portions of it are in Handel's Messiah. And yet it's a context that I think is perhaps less familiar. And I want to meditate on a mo- for a few moments about the light that was promised in the Old Testament that we believe has come and yet currently we still live in a world that is clouded by darkness. I don't need to speak very much about darkness to persuade you of how pervasive and real it is. It has touched every one of us. And in fact, I'm maybe a little bit hesitant to remind you of these things, but I will for this purpose. I believe that the light of Jesus Christ shines in the darkest of places. And so if we never talk about darkness, we never appreciate the power of the light of Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you, just within the past week, there was a horrible tragedy that took the lives of six people that were celebrating Christmas as part of their community and and injured 60 people, including 18 kids, when a man chose to drive an SUV into a holiday parade. It's a type of evil that we, we don't want to wrestle with. We don't even want to believe that it's part of our society. And there's a lady in our church who's grieving the loss of a three-year-old little boy this week, her, her grandnephew, her, her brother's grandson. And they found him. He had passed away on the couch just a few days ago. And others within our church family are praying for a 12-year-old little girl who had an unexplained seizure last Sunday, or excuse me, an unexplained seizure this past week, and doctors don't yet know why. And so the darkness that the Bible talks about is a darkness of pain and suffering, often confusion. And I want to begin there because the scripture I'm about to preach says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And I want to ask the question, is that also true of us? What type of darkness had those people experienced? And what type of light did they see? And can the light that they saw offer us help 
in the darkness that we experience. Advent season is a strange mixture of hope and longing. It recognizes God's long and slow working plan of redemption. And so to begin with, we look back to the voices of the prophets in the Old Testament and the godly saints who longed for the Messiah to come and rescue them in dark times. So the first candle that we lit a moment ago at the beginning of service is the candle of the prophets. And this morning, I want to talk especially about a prophet named Isaiah. But the truth is, all of the Bible speaks to the light of Christ. The Bible is very honest that darkness is great, but the light is greater, and it even speaks of a future dawn that is coming. And so my hope in these few moments of looking at Isaiah's prophecy and how Christ fulfills this prophecy is to encourage you, and we prayed this morning for you at 9.30, that the light of the scripture would give you hope today. So I want to begin with the promise of light. And look at verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah chapter 9 with me. Isaiah writes and says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, Isaiah gives us a picture of what he means by this light when he describes the joy of harvest. And we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and and we love a good feast, and we love to celebrate God's good and rich blessings. And part of what Isaiah is saying is for those who live in fear that there won't be enough, for those who live in danger of violence, the light that is coming brings peace and provision, and it brings joy and community and fellowship. But if we're going to answer the question, does this promise of light speak to us? We have to pause for a moment and talk about the darkness of Isaiah's day. Isaiah was a prophet during a time when Israel was still part of the nation. The nation had divided very early on in biblical history. And so there are two kingdoms, one smaller kingdom of Judah And Isaiah speaks to some of the kings of Judah. And the northern kingdom is in existence still, but beginning to have real trouble. And at this time in in history, there are two sort of global giants that Israel is caught between. There's Assyria in the north, and there's Egypt in the south. And they go back and forth with their raiding armies, trying to control this central hub of Middle Eastern trade. And so the people of Isaiah's day lived in sort of a hot spot of ancient global conflict. If you read through the earlier chapters of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah cautions against people that are paranoid about different conspiracy theories. Have you guys heard any conspiracy theories lately? Um, They are paranoid about rumors of coming destruction. 
In fact, Hezekiah, one of the kings that Isaiah ministers to, had to defend his little city of Jerusalem because the king of Assyria conquered town after town after town and sent messengers to him saying, you are next. No nation has been able to withstand my armies. And in fact, do not tell your people that God will deliver them. No other God has been able to deliver the people around you. Why do you think your God will be able to deliver you? And Hezekiah and Isaiah, standing on the promises of God, saw God deliver them in exciting, amazing, supernatural ways. But it was a time of great fear. For us, that fear is ancient. You can go see artifacts in museums, like at the Oriental Institute in Chicago. You you can see artifacts from ancient Assyria that describe this time of history. But when you are standing safely in a museum, your stomach is not tied in knots. You're not worried about the ancient king of Assyria coming to destroy you, to murder your family and destroy your hometown. And so we can read this in a sense of security and safety. And at Christmas time, it can even become quaint and it can become rightly joyful, but we can forget the reason for the joy is the promise of rescue, a real, genuine rescue. And friends, I believe some of the tragedies that we have heard about in the past week give us an emotional connection with the ancient people of Isaiah's day. The darkness that they felt was a darkness of evil people reaping destruction among them. There was violence. There was evil. In fact, the chapter right before these verses, where Isaiah says the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, are describing how the people of God have turned away from the word of God And they're trying to predict the future by communicating with the dead. Describes how they go after other gods and their motivation for that is they are afraid for their lives. They want to know the future so they can prepare for it and be planning for it. And Isaiah says, this is spiritual darkness. This is A turning away from the hope that we have in a God who promises to rescue us and deliver us. And so the darkness was not only defined by tragedy, it was defined by a spiritual immorality that neglected God's word and instead tried to find hope and assurance and security in other places. Now I'm going to say something that that maybe would upset a couple of people, and I hope that it's in a right way. Uh, But I'm not going to comment on whether or not I think you should take a vaccine or a booster. I'm not a medical professional. That's not what I'm here for. But I will say this. If your hope that we will get back to a normal life is just through medical intervention, that is a misplaced hope. If your hope that we will have a prosperous economy and a peaceful world is in the politicians that we have running for office, I think we can all agree that is a misplaced hope. It does not matter who is in power at a state or a local or a nationwide level. Our hope must not be in human planning and in science and in medical intervention 
we have a hope that can take us even through the valley of the shadow of death, even through death's door itself. And that is the hope of Jesus Christ, the light that Isaiah is prophesying about. And so the darkness in Isaiah's day was in the fear of war and in the spiritual decay that had turned away from the word of God. And I would say the darkness in our day is in the fear of death and pandemics and the culture wars that seem to be tearing our nation apart. And our hope must not be in a sort of political power so that we can just take the country back. Our hope must be that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shine in our own hearts. And we pray that that light would shine brightly in our community and in our nation and in our world so that those who are experiencing the deepest darkness have the same hope that we have. See, we don't believe in a kind of victory where we say we're just going to take over the world through strength and power. We instead believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can triumph in truly dark places and give people hope in hospital beds, whether they're there because of a virus or because of a violent attack on a peaceful parade. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us this promise. This is the light that we celebrate at Christmas. I want to remind you of of another passage that is very appropriate at this year. Someone who is looking to the Old Testament and all of God's promises and praying for it and waiting for it and longing for it. If you remember, when Christ is born, Israel is still in weakness. Rome has conquered the world. They are in the middle of Pax Romana. It is the peace that comes through the threat of a Roman sword. So it's peaceful. It had better be. Because if it's not, there's a sword that's going to come and make it peaceful. And in that context, the nation of Israel exists in weakness. And the angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a little boy. And that little boy is going to be the son of God. And he is going to be the savior of the world. And you're to call him Jesus, for he is to save his people from their sins. And Mary writes, I believe, some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture as she rejoices that God is a God who rescues the humble and who brings down the haughty. But a little bit after Mary's song, you hear something from a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is related to Mary, and he is a high priest, and his son, John the Baptist, is the one who goes and prepares the way for Jesus by telling people, you need to repent. If you don't repent, you're going to miss out on the light that is coming. He's going to come, and you're going to remain in darkness. And Zechariah's prophecy is found at the end of Luke chapter 1. And I want to point you to just a couple of verses. He does two things. He talks about how God is rescuing his people, how the light that Isaiah promised is coming. And then he talks about the ministry of his son, John the Baptist, and the light that comes through his preaching. So I'm in Luke chapter one for a few moments. Zechariah has seen God bless his wife with a baby boy after years of not being able to have a child. He sees that God has kept his promise. He understands that God is about to do something incredible. And here is Zechariah's prophecy. 
Verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Isaiah just being one example, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, Zechariah's hope is that God is a merciful God. He doesn't claim that Israel has been righteous. He understands that Israel has been punished for her sins because they broke the covenant that God made with them. And yet God in his mercy loves them in spite of their sin. And he has sent Jesus as a rescuer so that they can serve the Lord in peace without fear. And then notice how he continues. He says in Verse 76, and you, child, speaking to his son, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's talking about the same light that Isaiah was talking about. And the light that he's talking about is a forgiveness of our sins. He's not saying that evil is just out there in bad people. He's saying that evil is in here. And if we're going to experience the goodness of God's light, there needs to be a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he celebrates the mercy of God that has made this possible even before he understands how Jesus is going to make it possible. He just recognizes God will forgive our sins. We need to call on him. God is bringing us the king he has promised so that we can serve him in peace and in joy. And friends, I believe as we wait for the second coming of Christ, that message is still critical. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, That message is critical so that you're ready, so that when the king comes, you welcome him as a rescuer and not as a judge. And that message is critical for those of us who have already placed our faith and trust in Christ, so that we remember that our hope is primarily in the future. God has not promised us peace and safety in our lives. He has promised us strength for whatever trials he calls us to walk through and that there is coming a light that will never grow dim. There is coming a light that will give us hope and peace that our hearts long for in the present, but we find curiously and strangely mixed with darkness and evil. And Isaiah, I believe, to lift up our faith and to strengthen the hope that he's talking about reminds his people of a past deliverance. So I've talked about the promise of light. I want to point you to a past deliverance in Israel's history that illustrates that light that's coming. 
So the past deliverance, go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at verse 4 with me. Isaiah writes, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken is on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, what on earth is he talking about? Well, when you would go to war, you would put on armor. And at this time, metal is precious. When I pictured a suit of armor as a kid, I always pictured, you know, like knights in shining armor and their steel from the crown of their head to the tip of their toes. That's the kind of armor that I would. But in this day and age, a lot of your armor was actually leather. And then you had a precious amount of metal that you could move around. Maybe a helmet, maybe some metal on your shield, but most of your armor was leather. And yet, in a time of peace, there's no purpose for armor. So he's saying all of this blood-stained armor, you're going to burn it for your fuel because you have no need for it in the future. Peace has come. And there's a recognition of past violence, which is why this peace is so precious. Because it's putting your anxieties and your depressions and your fears to rest, saying the future is secure And he mentions one event in the past in verse four about how the rod of the oppressor is broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what on earth is Midian? In the book of Judges, which I think is perhaps one of the darkest books in all of the Old Testament, there's a famous story. Some of you heard it in Sunday school. Some of you have probably never heard it. But how God rescues his people through one man and 300 cowards. His name is Gideon. And the people of Midian were oppressing the Israelites to the point where they were stealing their food. People are starving and they have oppressed them so that they're not able to keep any sort of weaponry. And God says, I'm going to rescue you. And if you read that story, it's found in the book of Judges, you find Gideon kind of argues with God, says, look, you've abandoned us. There's no hope. I don't know why you've come to talk to me. I'm no, I'm no warrior. I'm no rescuer. You've got the wrong guy. And God says, no, I will redeem you. And so Gideon asks for a sign. He's like, prove it because I need some proof before I put my neck on the line. I don't want to be the next victim of the Midianites. And so God in his mercy and his kindness gives evidence again and again and again, says, look, I'm with you. I will protect you. I will give you a victory that you could not win. And so Gideon finally says, all right, Lord, I'm in. And they start to gather the troops. As an oppressed people, their troops are not impressive. They don't have a lot. And yet God says, you have way too many. Because I want you to understand that the victory that I'm about to give you is not through your own strength. So I want you to say, if anybody doesn't want to go to war, tell them to go home. And they have lots of volunteers that do go home. And they're about to face an army of about 135,000 soldiers. And they're sending troops home, even though they're vastly outnumbered. And Gideon begins this process of eliminating the precious few soldiers that he has until there are only 300 men. 
And with those 300 men, man, you would love to think that they're the brave warriors like when the Greeks do this, right? When, when they save the day with just 300 noble soldiers. No, they don't, they don't have swords. They don't, they don't have anything impressive. They go to war with a trumpet and a clay pitcher and a torch. And that's it. 300 of them against about 135,000 soldiers. And over and over again, Gideon, in fear, wrestles with God. I'm about to die. Like, you've told me to go fight this war. You sent all the troops home. And what are we doing? And God, in his kindness and his mercy, says, look, if you're still afraid, I want you to go to the camp of the Midianites. And in the camp of the Midianites, they sneak down in the dead of night. Gideon overhears two Midianite soldiers, and the one has had a dream. He says, in my dream... I saw a rock crushing the armies of Midian. And the other guy says, what do you think it means? And he says, I, I, I think the God of the Israelites is going to fight for them. I think we're going to lose. And after, Midian, after Gideon has had encouragement from the angel of the Lord who appears to him and gives him miracles to give him proof that God is at work, the thing that Gideon finally believes is enemy soldiers who demonstrate more faith than Gideon has. They believe just because they had a dream. And Gideon finally goes, oh, if that guy believes that he's about to lose, Lord, I guess you're going to do something special. And in the middle of the night, they surround the the Midianite camp and they break their clay pots and and the, the torch fire is visible and the Midianite army wakes up in a panic and the scripture says the Lord gave them that panic and they destroy themselves so that Gideon and his men didn't have to lift a finger for the victory that God gave them. They could not take credit for it. They could not say because of our strength and our military wisdom, Gideon had no military wisdom. He did not leave us any ancient warfare tactics that we look to and admire today. He had nothing. And God delivered the people so that they could eat food, so that they could enjoy God's rich blessings, so that they could worship the Lord in peace and in safety. And Isaiah is saying, hey, you remember that crazy story? And and I should mention this. That happened between five and 600 years before Isaiah lived, okay? Sometimes we're weird about history. Like if it happened a long time ago, we sometimes, well, did, that, did that really happen? Does that have any real relevance for us? Gideon's story is ancient history for Isaiah. And Isaiah in faith is saying, look, God did this in the past. He delivered us from the Midianites. The Midianites have not really been a global danger for a long, long time. But Isaiah's point is, if he did it then, there's nothing special about Assyria that they're somehow stronger and better and greater. And God will, through this light, rescue us just like he did on the day of Midian. For his power and with his glory... And there will be no more war. And then he begins to describe this person. The person that brings this peace, he describes this light. So look again at Isaiah 9, and I want to show you the prince of peace. The reason that they burn all their armor 
because there will be no more war. The Prince of Peace in verses 6 and 7, he says, For, and these are the Christmas verses that we all know, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I want to pause. There are so many rich things that we could pause and reflect on. But I want to ask you to consider what gets this job done. How is it that God rescues his people? And what is it that Isaiah says this rescue depends on? Now, he's preaching repentance and revival. He's longing for the people of God to recognize their own sinfulness and their need to turn from their sin and follow after the Lord with their whole hearts. But in this moment, he does not say, Oh, Israel, oh, Jerusalem, it depends on you. He says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is the one who brings rescue. And in Jesus' day, when the light is there, there are precious few people who recognize it. In fact, many people in Jesus' own day turn away from him. In fact, I want to point you to to another passage that is very familiar and read a few verses that are less familiar. Many of you could quote John 3.16. In John 3, we discover God talking about the light that comes into the world. And I want to show you the context for John 3.16. Jesus says, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is usually where we stop because it's got the hope of Christmas and the light that we celebrate there. But the gospel does not stop there. It says, Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, the scripture said the light has come, and many people in Jesus' day and in our own day prefer darkness. The scripture says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And often they are willfully blind. If you try to talk to them about Christ, they'll act like it's a fairy tale, even though 
There's so much historical evidence for what we find in scripture that it's clearly more than a made-up story or a myth. In fact, the evidence is overwhelming that Christ lived and died and rose again as the scripture records. But often people describe it as something that is irrelevant for life today. And I believe one of the primary reasons for that is we don't like what the scriptures say to us about our own sin. That if you believe in Jesus, you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to follow him. And the scripture says that many of us choose the darkness rather than the light. But here's what I want to hold up high today is how precious that light really is. Also in John's gospel, John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The light gives hope in the darkest places. And you say, man, can you, can you illustrate that? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, two things. And, and I want to talk about this in a spiritual way. And then I want to talk about this in terms of hope in a hopeless situation. And the first way is critical if we're going to get the second way to work. So the first way, how does this light work today? Well, friends, Christians believe, and if you are a believer, you already know this, but I want to remind you and encourage you with it. Christians believe that we are sinners, that the darkness the Bible talks about is internal. It's not something that we learned from bad people around us. We didn't need someone to teach us how to lie and cheat and steal. I've got two adorable little twin babies. They can be really cruel to each other, shockingly so, and violent, Now, I understand they don't know how much it hurts, except that they kind of do because they've both been on the receiving end of it. But the scripture says that that darkness that's in each of us needs to be driven out by the light of Christ. So as a young boy, when I first understood my own sinfulness, I can tell you that the light of Jesus drove that darkness out in two ways. First, I experience the forgiveness of my sins that comes when you repent and place your faith in Jesus. Jesus said, I've come into the world so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And there is spiritual rescue and cleansing from sin the moment you believe. But you know what? I've been a believer for about 30 years now, and everyone who spends any amount of time with me will tell you I am still a sinner. I can be irritating and frustrating. Some of you are nodding your head. Stop that. (laughs) Anyone anyone who spends any amount of time with me can tell you, man, I think there's actually still some darkness in that guy. What what is this that Jesus said that they're not going to remain in darkness? Well, that's the second way that the light drives out darkness. And it gradually, gradually makes us more and more like Christ. So that people who have known me for 30 plus years would say, he's at least better than he was. And some of you are laughing because you've only known me for like four or five years and you haven't seen any progress at all. It takes longer than that. 
But I want to encourage you that the light that shines into your heart the moment you believe in Jesus continues to shine in your heart and in your life to make you more and more like the Lord Jesus. That's the spiritual part of this light that's come, that's shining in the darkness, that's already here, and yet we still live with an awful lot of darkness in our lives. This past week, I was reading a book by John Piper called Providence. And many of you have heard the story. It's, it's kind of famous. It happened 50 years ago uh, about how a few missionaries in Ecuador were going to share the light of the gospel of Jesus with some people there. And, and in the process, through some misunderstandings, they were murdered by the people that they were going to tell Jesus about. Horribly and violently, uh, they stood for the gospel of Jesus. They could have defended themselves. I, I learned later in hearing about it, that they actually had revolvers that they used and they shot them out into the trees. They did not want to kill people that did not know the Lord. So even in self-defense, they chose to die rather than defend themselves. And that happened 50 years ago. And you can hear the testimonies of women like Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of, of Jim Elliot, who was one of the men who was killed. But what I actually read this past week in that book was a, a more recent story about a missionary family. Uh, Jim Bowers was the husband of the family. He and his wife and his son and their daughter were flying in a plane in Latin America. And in 2000, I believe it was 2000, but I didn't write the date down here. It was, it was about 20 years ago at this point. They were flying and the CIA mistakenly thought that they were drug runners. And so they radioed another country and said, hey, we, we think that we've spotted some, some drug runners. We, we want to take them out. And they radioed on an emergency frequency, ordering them to immediately land, but the radio that they had in their plane didn't pick up that frequency, so they heard nothing. And tragically... I'm going to use that word, although one of the guys I'm going to tell you about in a moment uh, resists that description. But tragically, their plane was shot down, and Jim's wife and infant daughter were both killed. Now, these are people that love the Lord. They want to spread the light. And yet, as they spread the light, they experience a type of deep grief and a horrible type of pain one of the deepest and most horrible pains that you can imagine. In a moment, he lost a wife and a daughter, and his son, who is six years old, lost his mom and his sister. And so they gathered for a funeral memorial service, actually here in Fruitport, Michigan. There's a church that was able to hold all of the people who came to, to grieve and to mourn with them. And in that service, a man named Steve saint came and spoke especially to that six-year-old little boy who had lost his mom and his sister. Now, Steve Saint is the son of one of the missionaries who was killed in Ecuador 50 years earlier. And so Steve Saint is looking at this little boy and he says, hey, I know what you're experiencing. Because about 40 years ago, I was sitting where you're sitting and, and people were coming around and talking to me about 
the horrible tragedy that had happened. And, and my mom had to come and tell me, you're not going to see your daddy again. He's not coming home. And Steve Saint said, well, I was a little confused. And I, I noticed that my mom was not horribly sad. And I said, well, well, where is dad right now? She said, well, we believe that he's with Jesus. We believe that he's with Jesus right now. And so as he processed this as a young man, he grew in the knowledge of the light of Jesus Christ. And he began to understand why his dad would willingly die to spread the light so that people have hope in darkness. And Steve Saint looked at this six-year-old little boy about 20 years ago. And he said, I want to tell you that what happened that day, I don't believe is a tragedy. Because for us, pain is superficial. It's momentary. It's temporary. Yes, it's real. And yes, it hurts. But the joy is fundamental. The joy is eternal. The joy does not, does not end. He actually said in response to the many people that were in grief and were telling him again and again how tragic it was, he said for them and for those who don't know Christ, the pain is fundamental and the joy is superficial because it won't last. That's life without Christ. But for us, whatever pain we experience is momentary and the joy is eternal. The joy is fundamental. I want to ask you today, do you have that kind of hope? People look for that kind of hope. People look for that kind of light in all kinds of crazy places. Just like in Isaiah's day, people will even turn to the stars in astrology trying to understand who they are. They'll, they'll talk about their sign, and this is the way I am because I was born under this star, and, and this is my future, and, and God says, I've given you a sure word. What are you doing? People will try to find happiness and peace in romantic relationships. They'll try to find identity in, in being a champion for the environment. They'll try to find identity in, in all kinds of causes, some of them good, but all of them temporary. And the message of the prophets of the Old Testament and the message of Jesus is that the light has come. That in some of the darkest days, like Steve Saint says, and I'm so thankful for him because his testimony and Elizabeth Elliot's testimony is that Jesus has been faithful for over half a century. It's not just an emotional service where everyone cries and tells themselves the right good Christian things to hear, but 50 years later, his testimony is still the joy is fundamental. Yes, the pain is real, but the joy is fundamental. And it has been the fuel for 50 years of faithfulness. Friends, it's my prayer that you would have that kind of hope today. So what do you do if you're not sure that you have that kind of hope? Well, the psalm that I read with Isaac and Rosie and Jack, I think gives us clear instructions. You seek the Lord. God says, seek my face. And with the psalmist, we reply, your face I do seek. 
Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Believe in Christ. Believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead and trust in his promises. Recognize you need light in your heart that the darkness in your own soul needs to be driven out by the light of Christ and seek the Lord. Humble yourself before him. Obediently be baptized saying, I believe that you died for me and that you will give me this eternal life. So number one, know the light today by seeking it. You might say, pastor, I've been a believer for a long time. I, I, I don't need to be baptized. I already know the Lord. What, what kind of light do I have? There's a lot of darkness out there and it touches the lives of believers. So number two, wait in hope. What does the psalmist say at the end of Psalm 27? Wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. Courage is necessary because the days are dark. Rest in the promises of God and the light that has already come. So step one, know the light today. If you already know that light, wait for it in hope. And then number three, encourage those who have no hope. Encourage those who have no hope. Christmas time is a great time to talk about the light of Jesus. We don't want to be obnoxious. We want to give hope to people who are in darkness. So look for ways to describe where your hope is at. And I want to end with the voice of another prophet. Because as we look for that hope and as we wait for that hope, Malachi says in Malachi 4.2, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have said to seek your face, and Lord, we do seek your face. With ears listening to your word, with hearts longing for your light, I pray that it would drive the darkness out of our lives. Lord, I ask for sweet comfort for those who are in grief and in fear. And I pray that as we trust you, that as our rescue and as our savior and as the light, we would be blessed even now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I dismiss you this morning, um, I want to leave you with just another verse, a verse that I often use to dismiss because it describes the power of God to sustain and hope. I want to encourage you to be looking to him to sustain you. Use this season to seek him in his word. And Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.